Well, welcome back, everyone, to the Ranking Presidents Podcast. I'm Bradley Cooper. And I am Curtis Cooper. We have reached our first president. Yes. As we were alive. Yes, Bill Clinton. It's kind of crazy that we've come this far. Yep, yep, yep. We say that every week, but we are nearing the finish line, but this is going to be... It's okay. It's going to be a two-parter for every president. Maybe like a 69-parter for Donald <laughs> Trump. I don't know. Like Donald Trump is Donald Trump's just going to it's just going to morph into the Trump podcast at the end. It's <laughs> like we're going to cover one tweet. Yep, one tweet per week. <laughs> one a tweet per week. But we're time to discuss Bill Clinton, who is still alive as of this podcast. So we're looking at his early life and his foreign policy. And then we'll jump next week. We'll get into this domestic policy and the scandal that I'm sure you all know about. So his real name was William Jefferson Clinton. Willie Jeff. Which is just kind of like a combination of all sorts of presidential names. Yep. He was born on August 19th, 1946 to William Jefferson Blythe and Virginia Cassidy Blythe in Hope, Arkansas. However, his father died in a car accident several months before his mother gave birth to him. His mother took him to her mother, Edith Cassidy's home. His mother was known for being fun-loving and free-spirited, and often took nursing classes in New Orleans, while his grandmother was a strong-willed disciplinarian who made sure Bill learned how to read. He would later say that while he loved both women, he felt torn between them, as they would often argue and he had to act as the mediator. Yikes. His mother remarried Roger Clinton, from whom Bill got his last name. Unfortunately, Roger was an alcoholic and an abuser to his mother. Yikes. The family moved to Hot Springs, Arkansas. As a young boy, he would often have to intervene in their violent arguments, at times with which force, with force which would lead to his stepfather being arrested. At the same time, Bill said, well, he still loved his stepfather and referred to him as Daddy in his books. Aww. As a teen, he did well at school and loved politics. He loved to play the saxophone as well. He did love his saxophone. Mm-hmm. And he loved listening to gospel music at his local Baptist church. However, he was also known to frequent gambling dens and mineral spas. Which mm. I can just see William Bill Clinton at a mineral spa. His mother went to racetracks on Sunday while Bill went to church to hear gospel music. At high school, his high school, which was known as Hot Springs High School, which was still segregated... Bill met the school principal, Johnny Mae Mackey, a woman who made Bill her protege. He was sent sent to Washington, D.C. as one of two Arkansas delegates to Boys Nations, which was a political convention sponsored by the American Legion. And in 1963, the 17-year-old Clinton met and shook hands with John F. Kennedy, which was famously photographed. Clinton's mother had long told him he would grow up to be president, and that moment of shaking JFK's hand just cemented that dream. I imagine just an anime scene where he shakes the hands with all might. In 1964, Bill Clinton attended Georgetown University in Washington, D.C. He had scholarships and part-time jobs to pay for his expenses. Although fellow students looked down on this country bumpkin, with his natural charm and charisma, he became president of the student government two years in a row. In his junior year of college, he worked as a clerk for the U.S. Senate Foreign Relations Committee, headed by Senator J. William Fulbright of Arkansas. During this time, he became convinced that the war in Vietnam was wrong. Wrong! Yep, not a good not a good thing, according to him. He got a scholarship to study at Oxford in England, but then immediately was drafted for Vietnam. But he got approval to go to England from his local ROTC program at the University of Arkansas Law School, and they agreed to accept him the next fall. 
but they ended up going to England again that fall, and it is unknown whether he did this with ROTC approval. So he might have been a draft dodger. In England, Bill Coyne the Miller Center was torn between two desires, one that the war was wrong, and also guilt that his friends were dying. In the fall of 1969, he resubmitted himself to the draft, but his lottery number was so high that he was all but assured he would never get called up for service. He would later send a letter to the ROTC program thanking them for saving him from the draft. In England, he did take part in many anti-war demonstrations, and all of this would, of course, come back to haunt him during his various elections. Oh, I'm sure the conservatives had a field day with that. Yep. In 1970, he went to Yale, where he both earned his degree and met Hillary Rodman, a person I'm sure we will never <sighs> hear from again. He would marry her in 1975, and he would also work on the U.S. Senate campaign of Joe Duffy in Connecticut, and managed the Texan campaign of George McGovern. In 1974, he ran for the House of Representatives in Arkansas against John Paul Hammerschmidt. Although he lost, the election was the closest for Hammerschmidt in his 26 years, which showed Bill had promise in politics. In 1976, he won election as state attorney general. In 1978, he won election for governor, making him at age 32 the youngest governor in the state. However, he left much to be desired. For one, he was unable to handle rioting from Cuban refugees that were interned at Fort Chaffee. He also raised auto licenses fees and ran into trouble with the state's timber entrance over clear-cutting, where he tried to stop them from harvesting most of the trees in the area at the time, which led to deforestation. In turn, he was voted out after one term for Frank White. But Clinton wasn't down and out. In 1982, he was back and won again through ads where he admitted his mistakes and asked for another chance, so the voters gave it to him. Please give Bill one more chance. And they gave him another chance. I guess it worked. Yep. As governor, this time he went after educational reforms. And his wife, Hillary, led a committee to improve Arkansas schools and also called for competence tests for teachers. Dropouts rates decreased and college entrance exam test scores improved, but the state's overall rankings didn't move much. At the same time as governor, he was also in favor of capital punishment and pushed for welfare programs that move people in the workforce. He also supported affirmative action and appointed more African Americans to roles than any other governor before him in Arkansas combined. Solid, definitely for Arkansas. Mm-hmm. He would go after legislation based on public opinion polls and use TV, leaflets, and telephone banks to pressure lawmakers. He tried to put himself front and center of the Democratic Party. He guided the Democratic Leadership Council, a group of moderate Democrats. He tried to bring white males back into the party without alienating minorities by arguing Republicans were using racial issues to gain power. In this role, he was pretty centrist, arguing the government should help citizens in places that the free market failed, but the people also had to work hard. This binding together of American work and individualism with government action was called a new covenant, and Clinton a new Democrat. New democracy. A new Democrat for a new order. Unfortunately, during his nominating speech for Michael Dukakis, who, as you might know, ran against George H. Bush, Bill Clinton gave a long speech that bored people since it was too policy-focused. But old Slick Willie would come back in The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, where he made fun of his boring speech and quickly got his mojo back. Oh, he pulled a Nixon. Yeah, he was. he's very charismatic and very good at sliding his way out of trouble. One might say he knew how to put on the right mask. He did, one might say. So, personality. It's obvious Bill had a pretty charismatic personality. Let's take a look. So, according to the presidential fam, he is 6 foot 2.5 inches tall and his weight is between 205 to 230 pounds. He's left-handed and has a lot of allergies to dust, mold, pollen, cats, and dairy. And the poor guy's got bleeding hemorrhoids. Oh, no. I love how they just say it very straight up. It's like, and he's got bleeding hemorrhoids. Ouch. So, let's go to a direct quote. 
Bill Clinton has a very true compass, observed Dick Morris, a former Clinton political advisor. I don't think that varies much with public opinion, but within the general proposition he wants to go north, he would take an endless variety of routes. He's constantly maneuvering, constantly picking the routes he wants to get there, maneuvering his opponents into positions where they can't get a clear shot at him. This is what leaves a legacy of Slick Willie. The nickname Click Willie was coined by Paul Greenberg, a columnist for the Arkansas Democratic Gazette, who was a frequent critic of the governor's tendency to compromise on state issues. Clinton's instinct for compromise is often linked to an unwillingness to offend others. Like FDR before him, he at times leaves people on the opposite side of the issue believing they stands with them. Some have inferred that this aversion making enemies is routed in childhood marred by the abuse of an alcoholic stepfather. Clinton concedes that he had to learn not to overdo his peacemaking skills that he developed as a child. But he would insist that his early trials also provide him with a special empathy. I can feel other people's pain a lot more than other people can. I think that's important for a politician. I think you literally have to be able to sit in the quiet of the room and actually imagine what life must be like for people growing up on the mean streets. People living their life behind bars. People about to face death's door. Clinton, personal outgoing, seems to genuinely enjoy campaigning and talking to voters on a wide variety of topics. He's particularly persuasive in small groups with whom he maintains strong eye, time, eye contact. He's a tacitile politician who commonly strokes, pats, or hugs those whom he is dealing. Mm, a little touchy-feely there, yep. Mr. Bill. Out on the sto stump, Clinton can be a folksy speaker with a ready store of down-home phrases laden with the rich Arkansas accent of his youth. His defense of a citizen's right to privacy, for example, can emerge as a call for government to give the good people, give people a good letting alone. And more formal sayings, however, his English strains a bit and has a tendency to become both long-winded and mired in statistical detail. So as for an anagram, I'd actually identify him as a nine for his optimistic and adapting character and his charisma. So let's talk about his religion for a little bit. So Bill Clinton was raised Baptist, and according to some, is actually quite spiritual. Even former Jerry Falwell associate Reverend Ed Dobson said Clinton is more deeply spiritual than every president we've had in recent years. As young as six years old, he walked a mile by himself to attend Park Place Baptist Church, while his parents fought and, his, and none of his friends actually went to the church, but he said he felt he needed to go. He would write, Well, by age nine, I absorbed enough of my church's teachings to know I was a sinner and to want Jesus to save me. So I came down the aisle at the end of Sunday service, professed my faith in Christ, and asked to be baptized. His grandmother was very religious, and he attended Billy Graham's crusade, where he was impressed by the desegregate audience. Now, he did have his doubts later in life about, like, the problem of evil and all that, but people often spoke of his Christian character and beliefs. During his high school graduation, he gave the prayer where he asked God to sicken us at the sight of apathy, ignorance, rejection, so our generation removed complacency, poverty, and prejudice. He also said, we, he prayed, we will never know the misery and muddle of life without purpose. Clinton claimed his 2004 autobiography that I still believed every word that I prayed. And although he didn't want to wait from organized religion, he came back in 1980 after the birth of his daughter Chelsea and his defeat in the gubernatorial election. As president, he would often attend religious services and help form the new Baptist organization with Jimmy Carter to emphasize issues of social justice and women's rights. Quote, I don't think I could do my job as president, much less continue to try to grow as a person in the absence of my faith in God and my attempt to learn more about what it should be and grow. It provides a solace and support in the face of all these problems that I am not smart enough to solve. Overall, his religious beliefs are fairly orthodox, and during the Lewinsky scandal, which we will discuss more next time... Very, very, very in-depth. Yes. Billy Graham said he would forgive Clinton. And supposedly... Okay, here's a little lore for us. So... 
The Seventh-day Adventists claim that there was a Seventh-day Adventist man who convinced him to come forward. I'm not really? sure if that's true. Really? I did not. not know this. I remember someone talking about this. I believe it was the um, the Senate chaplain. I think his name is Barry. Who was a Seventh-day yeah, Adventist. I've heard of him. Yeah. Heard of him. Apparently he had a chat with Bill and he said, well, I'll come clean. Now, Aww. I'm not sure how true that is, but it's a nice little story. Maybe we'll find out by next week. Yep. So some quick notes about his family life. Bill and Hillary largely kept Chelsea Clinton out of the public eye. They picked her name for the song Chelsea Morning by Joni Mitchell. According to the Miller Center, even Clinton's harshest critics give them marks for raising Chelsea right here. And some side notes. So apparently as young as four, she was expected to read the newspaper and have an opinion about social issues going on. Oh, man. Like, imagine having Hillary as, like, a helicopter mother. Yes. Like, that had to be intense. Mm-hmm. You can just imagine her be like, now, Chelsea, you need to understand all the issues. Give me your tax policy <laughs> with your math homework. You must have some political opinions. <laughs> yeah, just being like, we don't talk a lot about being the kids of presidents, but especially being the kid, not only just a president, but like a power political couple like him and Hillary. Yeah, yeah. So I'm not going to talk about all of Bill Clinton's affairs. I'm saving that for next time because... Or allegations. Or allegations of affairs. This is a mess. So that's all I had for his personality. Curse, what did you have for the State of the Union? All right, so I had some very interesting things for the State of the Union. So yeah, what did you have for us for the State of the Union? Okay, so for the State of Our Nation, I have brought in two special guests that may or may not have been born in the 1990s. Ah, that's true. I have Bradley Bradley Cooper. Yes. And Curtis Cooper, myself. Yes. (laughs) Now, uh, I was born in the year of our Lord, 1996. Mm -hmm. So, most people would not consider me a 90s kid, which is fair. Mm -hmm. But Brad, I feel like you more fit the mold of a 90s kid. Yeah, so I was born in 1992, which is... Okay, here's the weird thing. Like, it depends on how you define it. Do you define it by, like... How much you remember of the 90s, or just, you know... I mean, yeah, I feel like if you remember a few significant things about the 90s... and I do remember a few things. Like, I can definitely remember... So, one of the big games that came out during my life... I I was going to talk about some games. Uh, Yep, go ahead, go ahead. So, of course, it was Ocarina of Time, which came out in 1998, which was the Legend of Zelda series. For those who aren't into video games, it's, uh, it's basically... The second big series that Nintendo's made after Super Mario Brothers, yeah, adventure game, and before that it had been in a 2D game, but then it went 3D with Ocarina of Time. Changed the game. Changed the game, and is still regarded as one of the best games of all time. And your personal favorite yes, game of all time. It is my personal favorite. So, but what were you going to talk about about the '90s? All right. So, um, I was going to, well, first of all, say that I remember. Basically, my third birthday in 1999, and that's basically all I remember from the from the 90s. Yeah. Um, and but, my fourth but kind of, birthday. Like, the 90s culture sort of extended beyond the 90s itself. Oh, definitely. And, like, I think that... And, I mean, just, like... I feel like since we have grown up in, like, kind of, like, this glob of, like, 2000s, 2010s, mm. 2020s, like... It's a lot more gradual than I think we always think of the, the, the decades in the 20th century. Yeah. But, like... There was a lot of people acting like like '60s people in the '70s. Yes, you know, like yeah, culture didn't have just clean breaks every decade. No, it didn't. And so, like, 2000s was very much marked by the fact that video games were becoming a household pastime. Yes, like in the '80s, they were a li- little bit more like 
niche slash go to an arcade and then like maybe if you have a nintendo play that mm-hmm. whereas like in the 90s like kids would go home and hook up their genesis or their super nintendo mm-hmm. or their 64 yeah or playstation and so i just wanted to have a quick chat not uh ocarina of time doesn't count so we already mentioned that but yes. two games that came out in the 1990s that mean a lot to you and i will do the same okay okay yeah um Doing something a little bit different today. Yes, yes. There's a lot. Well, there's a lot of games I could mention. I'll go first since yeah, uh, go since ahead. you just mentioned Ocarina of Time. And for me, it's we're gonna go super basic, popular '64 games again. Oh yeah. Um, super Mario '64. Yes. Is one of the most nostalgic games ever for a lot of people, including mm-hmm. me. Mm-hmm. Um, and that game kind of like was the progenitor to like even some open world design because like you would enter into a level and instead of going linearly from like left to right you would just be dropped into the sandbox and explore yes and oftentimes the levels you could get like you could get the main collectibles in whatever order you wanted Mm -hmm. and so i love that game yeah so there's a lot of different games i could talk about and there are some that aren't as good as others so I'm going to focus on one that I think is really good. I'm going to go with Super Smash Brothers. Ooh! So Super Smash Brothers, I haven't really played many fighting games before that. And to play a game like that, that's such a unique of a fighting game. Because it's just this idea of, let's take all these characters that have been made, and let's just have them beat the crap out of each other. Yep. But in a fun, almost like party style yeah, all game. these all these cartoony characters beating the crap out of each other. Yeah, them. and especially because, and even though like Super Smash Brothers has gotten super complex and everything... There's a sense of, like, this is a different sort of game. This isn't, like, a complicated fighting game. This is something anyone can pick up with and have fun with. Mm-hmm. And also just introduced me to so many characters I wouldn't have known about, like Captain Falcon, Kirby, and, of course, later, once we get to Melee, we get the Fire Emblem yeah, characters. Yeah, literally the first time Americans saw Fire Emblem characters. Yes, definitely a good one. But what's another one for you, Curtis? All right, so my second one is a little bit more niche, because, mm-hmm. like, it's it would be easy for, like, a nerd to say, like, oh, Final Fantasy VII, or, like, yeah. um, like, a, like Crash Bandicoot or something. But I'm going to say that a game that was formative for me, that I obviously played after it came out, but was still... Mm-hmm. It came out in 1998, which is one of the best years of all time for video games. Oh, yeah. Was Xenogears oh, for the PlayStation yes. 1. Now, for anybody out there who is a video game nerd mm-hmm. like us... And who likes engaging, crazy, complex storytelling. Yes. Look up this game, watch the cutscenes for this game, or just find a way to play it. Mm-hmm. Because Xenogears is a crazy combination of Evangelion-esque mech fighting, mm-hmm. Jungian psychology, a time-spanning story that literally takes place over 10,000 years and is right. not told linearly. You literally start, you literally get dropped. Mm-hmm. 10,000 years into the future, and then you ca- it kind of unravels over time, like, how this world was created, what the creation myths are, and how that all ties to, like, a super old civilization. Yes, and it's in that same... I, I, don't, know if, I don't know if they're necessarily connected, but the same franchise as Xenosaga. Yes, games, yes. Correct? Xenosaga and Xenoblade are at least spiritually connected to Xenogears. Mm-hmm. And this game is crazy, it's ambitious, 
and I can confidently say that this single game contains more dense plot than all of the Kingdom Hearts games put together. Mm, that's high praise. <laughs> Which is crazy. Yeah. And you all should give it a shot. Yeah. So since I already seen the Ring of Time, I'm just going to say a game that isn't necessarily good, but was actually formative for me. Ooh. And that was a game, I remember getting it with my dad, it was called Quest 64. Oh, I've heard of it. Yes. Now this game, it's a very generic RPG, where you're sort of a little kid, your dad's some grand wizard, so you have to go off on an adventure... And this was the first turn-based RPG I played. And you fight all these monsters, and the world has this very mystical and weird feel, and also has an anime-esque feel. And because this was the first time I was really exposed to this, outside of like... This I is mean, your first RPG. Yeah, now Ooh. I had seen someone else play like Final Fantasy VII a little yeah. bit. But this was the first time I tackled this, and this introduced those ideas to me. So then I could swallow it easier when I got to yeah, better totally. stuff. Because everyone has something that... Either a genre that they're introduced to in a certain way. Yeah, absolutely. And, and a, like, lo a lot of times it just comes how you're introduced to a genre, whether you stick with it or not. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. That is that is awesome. Yeah. So, obviously, video games are cool, and the 90s made them cool. Yes. So, that being said, let's talk a little William Clinton foreign policy. Yes. Strap in, because we got some wild stuff to talk about. We always do when it comes to these presidents. All right, let's start off, um, obviously, reading from the Miller Center here. Um, let's talk Somalia, Rwanda, and Haiti. Ah, yes. Because there is stuff that has to be addressed. Weeks before Clinton took office, outgoing President George H.W. Bush had sent American troops into Somalia, a country located in eastern Africa. Mm. What started out as a humanitarian mission to combat fam famine grew into a bloody military struggle, with the bodies of dead American soldiers dragged through the streets of the Somalian capital of Mogadishu in October of 1993. Public support for the American mission waned, and Clinton announced a full withdrawal of U.S. forces, which took place on March, in March 1994. The U.N. peacekeeping troops remained remain in the country until the spring of 95. The intervention ultimately accomplished little in Somalia. Warlords remained in control, and no functioning government was restored in the country after the U.S. and the U.N. left. The failure of American troops to be properly equipped for the mission led ultimately to the resignation of Secretary of Defense Les Aspen, and created the impression of a president ill-prepared for foreign affairs. Yeah, and Somalia is still known today as just a country that basically doesn't exist. It's yep. a country that's split between warlords, and I mean... In recent years, I mean, we dealt with that through Somalian pirates. Yeah, I was about to say, like, the only, I, pretty much the only cultural touchstone for Americans these days is the pirates. Yes. In April 1994, a vast killing spree broke out in Rwanda, one of the most notorious mm -hmm. genocides ever. Yes. A nation located in Central Africa. An estimated 800,000 Tutsi and their defenders were murdered in the government-sponsored genocide. With the failure in Somalia still very much in the minds of American policymakers, neither the U.S. nor the U.N. moved aggressively to stop the slaughter. Both Clinton and the world community were criticized for not acting quickly and decisively to stop the violent deaths of Rwandans. In 98, the Clintons embarked on an extensive six-nation tour of Africa, during which the president stopped briefly in Rwanda to meet with survivors of the Civil War and to issue an apology for actions not taken. I'm sorry. Yeah. This kind of gets... This reminds me of why people start to think of the UN as not being effective. Because mm, yeah. it's this stuff when they think about it. Yeah, like, isn't, isn't like, the whole reason that the UN exists is to, like, stop, like, vast losses of human life and, like, atrocities? Yeah, yeah. Uh, didn't do it. Nope. And, I mean, some would argue they're not doing a great job with the current predicaments. No. In Haiti, following Clinton's failed October 1993 attempt 
to oust Haitian strongman Raul Cedras, former President Jimmy Carter stepped in to negotiate with the brutal military dictator for his removal of power. Cedras had overthrown the Caribbean nation's democratically elected president, Jean-Bertrand Aristide, in a 1991 coup. Accompanied by retired General Colin Powell and Senator Pam Nunn, Carter communicated Clinton's threat to invade unless the generals of the junta relinquished power. With American planes in the air, the generals buckled and agreed to leave. United States forces were sent in to make certain that the agreement was enforced, but they were eventually withdrawn. The democratic institutions of this impoverished nation remain fragile and endangered. All right, how much credit we given for something Jimmy Carter did? <laughs> yeah, not very much. And I'm just going to say real quick about Haiti. So Haiti's in- history is interesting because Haiti is basically, it was the first successful like slavers revolt that took place in the early 1800s. Mm-hmm. So they took over, they took over the country. But all the European powers, and especially America, didn't really want to see a nation run by slaves, especially Africans, succeed. So there was quite a lot of, you know, economic strangling of Haiti, which still impacts it to this day. Wow. And that's part of the reason why Haiti has been, you know, so impoverished throughout its history. Mm -hmm. So that's just a side note. So American foreign policy has often not been particularly the—we've talked a lot about American foreign policy in Latin America— Sometimes it's okay, but a lot of times it's, it's kind of a disaster. Yeah, 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 for sure. All right, so um, regardless of these early difficulties, Clinton knew that the success of his presidency required a cohesive foreign policy. Trained as a student at the Georgetown School of Foreign Service, Clinton eventually focused on the creation of a new approach to international affairs, a policy his doctor, his advisors called, and I mean the jokes literally write themselves for Bill Clinton, <laughs> The Doctrine of Enlargement. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I was not ready for that when I read it. Wow, that's that's just... that's. I don't think I was expecting something this bad on the nose. You know? It's oh, like, he is, he is nothing if not a PR man. Yep, he yep, is yep. Like... This doctrine, based on the idea of expanding the community of market democracies around the world, embraced free trade, multilateral peacekeeping efforts, and international alliances and a commitment to intervene in world crisis situations when practical. Mm-hmm. All the enlargement is only given when practical. <laughs> I.e. with little risk and low cost in U.S. lives, and morally defensible. The policy promoted an activist role for America and was designed to extend and protect basic human and civil rights insofar as it was within the power of the U.S. to successfully achieve these goals without undermining national security or depleting national resources. There's a lot of caveats to this. Yeah, that's a bunch of caveats there. In Clinton's mind, the U.S. must continue its role as the principal leader of the world in promoting human dignity and democracy, with the understanding that it must never act in isolation or overextend its reach. Side note, this is the most modern Democrat thing I've read up to this point. <laughs> yes, that is very much uh, a Democrat statement. Yeah. Like, I, I could see Biden saying that. Yep, yep, yep. Like, launch this, like, super fun policy that... Sounds great, but literally lacks no, it literally has no teeth whatsoever. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The Clinton administration achieved some notable accomplishments in foreign affairs. Russia was successfully persuaded to withdraw troops from the Baltic republics of Estonia and Latvia in 94. It also pushed through Congress two new massive trade agreements. NAFTA. Ah, in a, lot of a lot of people don't like NAFTA. Yep. That's... That's a whole bag can of worms. Yep. And a revision of General Agreements on Tariffs and Trade, GATT, in 1994. Mm-hmm. Administration initiatives also staved off an impending economic collapse of Mexico. <laughs> Reading ahead, I was like, 
I thought it. I thought it was going to say up, up, impending economic like invasion of Mexico or something. Yeah. I'm like, what? Yeah. <laughs> that would have been something that so Slick Willie would have slipped through. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to invade Mexico, <laughs> but don't worry. It's just part of my enlargement plan. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to get large. <laughs> And helped produce remedies in similar crises with Asian markets two years hence. Furthermore, an administration emissary, former Senator George Mitchell, brokered peace negotiations between the Republic of Ireland, the United Kingdom, and Sinn Féin. Uh, that that means ourselves alone. I don't know what Sinn Féin is. That's kind of, that was a political party within, um, because at the time, this is part... Of when Northern Ireland, there was a faction within it that wanted to join up with Ireland. So they were basically engaging in a terroristic guerrilla war against the UK. Mm. And Sinn Féin was the name of their party, essentially. Gotcha. So the radic- Irish Republicans, the IRA. Mm-hmm. In the Middle East, the administration facilitated negotiations between Israeli and Palestinian leaders. While these talks seemed to offer hope of a potential settlement, they broke off amid mutual recriminations and were soon followed by a renewed and more lethal round of fighting between palestinians and israelis and that is certainly not something we will talk about continuously nope all right let's talk about ethnic wars in europe now Mm, yes the yugoslavia conflict major international challenges also came from the numerous civil and ethnic conflicts in the balkans After two years of keeping U.S. involvement in the conflict to a minimum, Clinton was eventually moved by Serbian atrocities against Bosnian civilians. The administration pushed NATO to begin bombing Bosnian Serb positions. Eventually, that use of force, in tandem with diplomatic efforts led by his Assistant Secretary of State for European Affairs, Richard Holbrook, brought the three warring parties, Croats, Serbs, and Bosnian Muslims, to the bargaining table. The resulting Dayton Peace Accords ended the fighting. Clinton sent a peacekeeping force of 20,000 American troops, part of a larger NATO deployment, mm. into the region to enforce a ceasefire that was followed by free elections in September of 96. American and NATO troops enforced an uneasy settlement that stabilized war-torn Bosnia with no American casualties. That certainly falls under his enlargement plan. Yeah, I get the sense that he was kind of so... He mishandled Rwanda, so he's like, well, I guess I'll try to get this one right. Yep. You know, another genocide going on in the 90s. Yep. In 99, Clinton moved with NATO to begin a massive bombing campaign against the Serbian government to end its, quote, ethnic cleansing of Albanians in the Kosovo region. Mm -hmm. uh, Specially trained forces from the Serb Interior Ministry, along with paramilitary forces that had been active in Bosnia years before, had created hundreds of thousands of refugees through the application of this policy. Serb forces also murdered thousands of ethnic Albanians, but the bombing pro- the bombing worked and with the help of Russian diplomacy forced the Serbian government to withdraw from the region. With no American battle casualties during the fighting, US troops joined British, French, and other NATO forces to occupy Kosovo as peacekeepers under an agreement worked out with Yugoslavia. The province remained nominally part of Yugoslavia, but the Kosovars had gained autonomy and the possibility of eventual independence. Clinton's forceful stand in Bosnia and Kosovo enhanced his foreign policy resume. So, I mean, he did do that right, at least. Yeah, yeah, at least. Let's finish up by talking about the former Soviet Union. Yes. So, the former Soviet Union and its Eastern European client states constituted yet another challenge for the Clinton administration. Because that was real fresh. Yes. The president lobbied successfully for the inclusion of Poland, Hungary, 
and the Czech Republic into the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, or NATO, indicating to Russia that neither nuclear weapons nor large numbers of troops would be placed in Eastern Europe. Nevertheless, some Russians regarded expansion as an aggressive step by NATO and the U.S. Clinton also supported the, the besieged leadership of Russian President Boris Yeltsin, as well as the funneling of billions of dollars in loans to Russia from the International Monetary Fund. In 1999, Clinton's support for financial aid to Russia came under attack in the face of mounting evidence that much of the borrowed money may have been stolen by an organized criminal syndicate, which included members of Yeltsin's own family. Yikes. Mm -hmm. However, supporters of Clinton's pro-Yeltsin policies credit his administration with an important achievement not easily measured in dollars or in the short run, the security of the Russian nuclear arsenal. Working through the provisions of the Nunn-Lugar Act, the administration provided extensive technical assistance and funding to the former Soviet states in the safeguarding of nuclear power plants and dismantling of nuclear weapons, an astounding achievement in, in view of the animosity that once existed between the U.S. and the Soviet Union. By the end of the Clinton presidency, the likelihood of a nuclear exchange between the superpowers was almost non-existent. Mm. So, I mean, that was, that was a win for the Clinton presidency. Yeah, it's interesting to hear the NATO stuff. Oh, the NATO stuff will come up again, surely. Oh, yes. Yeah, his, uh, his foreign policy is interesting because on the one hand you have, okay, let's try to keep the peace, let's try to keep things, you know, stable. On the other hand, you've got a lot of people dying in Somalia and then you've got a genocide happening on his watch. Kind of just all the bad stuff happening in the 90s. Yeah, you got a bunch of genocides, so not exactly the best. Mm -hmm. So all that being said, let's talk a little bit about some a final caucus, because we're not going to rank him right now because we haven't done his policy yet. Nope. So, if there's one secret sauce to both effectiveness as a president and ability to get elected, it's charisma. We've seen time and time again charismatic presidents defeat less charismatic presidents. Jackson beat John Quincy Adams, Reagan beat Jimmy Carter, and Clinton beat George H. Bush. He was more handsome. Yeah. But should we as Americans find some way to take charisma out of the equation? Mm. Should elections be merely missed of policies? Or should we take charisma into consideration when we go to the voting booth? Should that be something we consider? Hmm. Don't let Americans see the candidates' faces. Mm. Ever. Or their voices. Yep. <laughs> um, I think that... Um, Charisma with presidents is kind of a tricky thing. Because, like, charisma means different things to different people. Because, mm -hmm. like, a lot of people would classify, like, Donald Trump as charismatic. Yes, they would. But, like, other people would be like, no, I mean, his 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 addresses are more bumbling to me than yeah. anything else and, like, nonsensical. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, I feel like people would have described someone like Jackson the same way, where he's like, no, yeah. that guy's not charismatic. He's just crazy. Right. Um, so I think that charisma kind of changes with the generations too, mm -hmm. because I think that Obama was charismatic, especially in 2008 in a different way than Clinton was yes, in 92. Was. Yeah. Yeah. I would just say charisma is something that might be important when you're looking at on diplomatic stance of him being able to work with other people and actually get their policies passed because mm -hmm. a charismatic person is more likely to be able to like push forward policy. Yeah. And if, and if they use their char charisma to like, kind of like try to like negotiate with like different powers and like try to reach across the aisle to get stuff done and like yeah that's that's definitely effective yeah i think it's definitely a factor you need to take account for but mm -hmm. so that was bill clinton part one but stay tuned next time we'll be talking about domestic policy and ranking him so oh it's tuned. gonna be a party so stay tuned once again i'm bradley cooper and i am curtis scoop stay ranking rank <laughs>